Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 942. We bring you a pair of excellent interviews today, starting with Jay Jaffe welcoming Fred C. Harris to the program. Fred is co-author of the Great American Baseball Card Flipping, Trading, and Bubblegum book, which was originally published in 1973 and was a personal favorite of Jay's. The pair discussed the historical popularity of the book and its many reprinted versions over the years, including the goal of running it again for its 50th anniversary. Jay also shares some of his favorite passages and players from the book, and Fred shares an anecdote about one of those players being not too happy. I had arranged autograph parties, and I arranged an autograph party for Jim Bouton when he wrote the sequel to Ball Four. Okay. Oh, and wow. so I thought, even though I wasn't based in that story, I thought, oh, what the hell, I should probably go over there and shake his hand. <laughs> and I thought, honest to God, I thought he was going to punch me out. He recognized my name because we only we, we had him in the book. We said Jim Belton has a big mouth. Right. That, yes. That's all we said. And, and he was he was honestly he was pissed off. In the second half, David Lorelo welcomes Orioles right-hander Cole Sulcer to the program. Sulcer shares things like his favorite ballparks to pitch in, how having Tommy John two times has shaped his career, and what it was like to be teammates and friends with Kyle Hendricks at Dartmouth. We also hear about playing in Dominican Winter League with players like Fernando Tatis Jr. and Nestor Cortez before getting a first-hand retelling of Sulcer's Major League debut. And getting that first call in from the bullpen, running out to the mound. One of the other guys gave me a really good piece of advice. I'd heard it a couple times coming up through the minors to just that first outing, take a moment, look around the stadium when you're on the field there, and just know that you're at the highest level of baseball that, that there is. And so... I remember doing exactly that. And then you kind of lock it back in and, and go out there and do what you're meant to do, and that's pitch. But before we get to these great segments, I must encourage you to visit the Fangraphs.com shop, which not only features stylish merch, but also the Fangraphs ad-free membership. For as little as 5 bucks a month, you can browse a site at blazing fast speeds with no ads, while also helping us keep the lights on and do everything we do. Plus, you can use the dark mode theme, which is pretty slick, if I do say so myself. Thank you for all of your support. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. As best I can recall by retracing my steps, my first baseball card was a 1977 Jim Lonborg 3D card plucked from a box of Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. My days as a hobbyist began when my mom brought my brother and me a couple of Topps 1978 packs while grocery shopping. I was eight years old at the time. By the time I was 13 and had a bus pass, the money I'd previously spent on baseball cards and candy was now devoted to books and records purchased at one of Salt Lake City's two downtown malls, Crossroads and ZCMI. One day while straying from my usual route, I stumbled into Sam Weller's Zion Bookstore, a Mormon-owned shop dauntingly full of religious tracts, but offering the promise of unexplored terrain via their sports section. Indeed, I found the shelf with the sports books, and one day I spotted one I hadn't seen at my usual Walden Books. The Great American Baseball Card Flipping, Trading, and Bubblegum Book by Brendan C. Boyd and Fred C. Harris. Published in 1973, the book contained full-color photos of both familiar and obscure players, nearly all of whom predated my own viewing and collecting. The shots were accompanied by a variety of prose that was unlike any I'd encountered in my baseball books. Not Roger Angel, Jim Bouton, or Bill James, but mixing a variety of irreverence that might have been a cousin of, to some of the saucier bits of my weekly sports illustrateds. I didn't buy the book that day with my friend because I'd run out of cash, but came back a week or two later when I had a fresh $10 bill burning a hole in my pocket. Nearly 40 years later, the Great American Baseball Card book remains one of my all-time favorites alongside Ball Four in the Summer Game. Not only is it a book I've read passages of aloud to friends who gained their own appreciation for its mix of nostalgia and irony, I even used it to woo my wife, figuring that she'd appreciate its sense of humor and window in a bygone era. 
What's more, I've come to believe that the book, written by a couple of outsiders, was a forerunner of the irreverent style common to many blogs, particularly in the first big wave of blogging, of which I was a part in the early 2000s via my Futility Infielder website. The use of baseball cards as a vehicle for storytelling has become the basis of books such as Josh Wilker's Cardboard Gods and Brad Baluchin's The Wax Pack. Apologies to you if you're out there, Brad. I'm, I hope I didn't mispronounce your name. When Fred Harris showed up in my Twitter feed a few years ago, I figured that at some point we'd get to talk, and I'm delighted that day has finally arrived. So welcome to the show, Fred. Oh, thank you, Jay. It's really wonderful to be here. I'm glad you asked me. Uh, yeah, what you're, uh, you popped up recently in my, in my Twitter feed mentioning the, the Great American uh, Baseball Card book with a 50th anniversary on the horizon. And so uh, I thought it would be a good, a good chance to, to talk here and we'll go into this. I want to uh, start by, by getting, uh, getting you to tell me a little bit uh, of, of its origin story, how, how you and Brendan Boyd came to write this book. Sure. It tracks back to the late 60s in Boston. My wife and I had been in Amherst, Mass., I was pursuing a PhD in American literature. There's an archaic concept, but decided to move to Boston while I considered my dissertation, and uh, never, which I never wrote, by the way, for reasons that will become clear. But uh, I got a job working in a bookstore on Boylston Street in Boston called Book Clearinghouse, old-fashioned bookstore, wonderful selection of books. They recently opened up a paperback department. Paperbacks were sort of the um, ugly stepchild of the book business back then. And um, they became a real thing in the in the mid to late 60s. And um, so I was working in the bookstore and the manager of the store was a fellow named Dick McDonough, who went on to become our editor at Little Browning Company. And uh, he was really the key to our book getting its original traction. But the books, the book itself began really with myself and Brendan. Brendan worked in the store as well, just you know, talking back and forth about baseball and baseball cards and stuff. And baseball cards were not really a thing that back then. They were just something, kind of a phase that you passed through as a kid, buying packs and keeping them, you know, your favorite teams, players, and stuff like that. And putting, in the case, in my case, a kid growing up in Philadelphia, putting a Mickey Metal rookie card in the spokes of my bike you know, to make that motorcycle sound. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that, but I mean, it was a, a real different time. But anyway, Brendan and I got to talk and you know, we were telling each other stories and they got embellished and stuff. And he looked at me one day and said, you know, are there any books about this? And I said, no, maybe we should write one. And that's really how it started. And we were fortunate to have an advocate in Dick McDonough because he was just about to leave managing that store to become an editor at Little Brown in Boston, one of the major publishers of the time. And I guess they still are, although I really don't know what the publishing business is now. It's very different from what it was back then. But, um, you know, Dick encouraged us once he'd made that move to Little Brown, and we sort of put our noses to the grindstone and, and cranked out the book. But we were really limited back then because baseball cards were not, as I said, they were not a thing back then. They were certainly not perceived as being valuable in any, in any financial way. So we were basically limited by the cards that we actually had and could could sort of oh, wow. pull together from other people. And that, that that was really the core of the subjects for the book. So, you know, you won't see a mantle or people like that. I and mean, you will see Johnny Unitas because we had a Johnny Unitas card. <laughs> I love the Johnny Unitas card in there. So those <laughs> yeah. so those those shots, those came those came from your own collections. Exactly. Uh, yeah, oh, wow. definitely. I don't think and, I ever uh, realized that. Wow. That's great. That's amazing. Yeah. So while it was limiting, it was also, I think, inspirational and pretty representative of baseball back at that time. I mean, you know, when guys had to have second, most most guys, the majority of guys had to have 
off-season jobs and stuff like that just to keep afloat. Uh, the right. money was not the big money that we've come to to know and love now. Uh, yeah, so right. so that's really how it started. That was the that was the that was the key. And then a little bit later, after the, the idea was developing at, at, at Little Brown, Little Brown was acquired by Time Life, and Time Life, of course, had Sports Illustrated as one of its right. assets. And Sports Illustrated was looking at beginning a publishing division, and so we were in the right place at the right time oh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I don't think I realized that connection before. Yeah. So yeah. the original book was published as a you know Little Brown Sports Illustrated book. Um, uh-huh. That was a big help in terms of obviously in terms of uh, launching it uh, at the time. Right. And um, so was it was it advertised in Sports Illustrated then? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. And Sports Illustrated put some serious um, some serious dollars behind promoting it and and touring us as authors, you know, in, in different uh, cities and stuff like that. I Brendan mm-hmm. did a lot more of that at that time. I did more of it for the subsequent editions of it, but yeah, we were we were fortunate that the money was there, and, and Time Life, being Time Life at that time, was flush with cash, and they were happy to, you know, spend it on something they thought was going to benefit the, the enterprise. Right. So, what was the, what was that initial reception like? Did it get good reviews? Yeah, it really did. I, I we didn't have we were too young and too dumb to have expectations. <laughs> but but um you know we just had fun we, we had fun doing it you know and but uh, yeah the reviews happened really quickly i mean back then little brown had a and sports and time life and sports illustrated had a a very effective you know public relations and advertising division that really really put us on the map and got us in all the right in, in front of all the right people new york times vogue you know places like that which were big factors at the time and it was it was received very much as you you indicated in your introduction as a kind of a irreverent offbeat look at baseball and i think the irreverent part should be underlined because yes. that that kind of tone the tone that we set with our commentary um i think was um refreshing at that time uh for sports books in general which for the most part took themselves very seriously and not 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 necessarily in a bad way it's just that to have a kind of smart ass sense of humor about some of these things uh, was was refreshing at the time. Yeah, I think that, you know, that that to me is, I think, one of the enduring powers of the book is that, you know, it, it is this kind of forerunner because it was, you know, it's written by outsiders who don't have to be, you know, in the locker room facing the music, you know, which has its pros and cons. I've, I've seen both sides of it here yep. in my career going from being a, a, a graphic designer, moonlighting and at blogging and, you know, throwing spitballs from the back of the class. <laughs> you know, try, play, playing things for laughs to somebody who actually, you know, has a BB, not only BBWA card now, but a, a vote uh, for the Hall of Fame ballot, you know, Hall of Fame ballot and, you know, mm-hmm. a card. And and I'm sure I've written things that have pissed actual players off at times, <laughs> you know, and nobody's ever confronted me directly, but I've, I've certainly heard secondhand that. Uh, sure. Well, let me give, give you an example like, of, of something uh, that happened. We, the last thing we thought about was ever having to, to, to face anybody that we were, we were writing about. And with any kind of luck, we never would have except that I went on to be managing several bookstores, chain of bookstores in Boston, the Boston area in New York called Laureate's Old Fashioned Bookstore that was transitioning to a modern bookstore chain and was ultimately bought out by Walden Books. It was sort of the, one of the one of the base basis chains for Walden, well, the Walden concept. But anyway, I had arranged autograph parties and I arranged an autograph party for Jim Bouton when he wrote the sequel to Ball Four. Okay. Oh, and wow. so I thought, even though I wasn't based in that story, I, I thought, oh, what the hell? I should probably go over there and shake his hand. 
<laughs> I thought, honest to God, I thought he was going to punch me out. He recognized my name because we, we only we, we had him in the book. We said Jim Belton has a big mouth. Right. That, yes. That's all we said. And, and he was he was honestly he was pissed off. Okay. And this yeah, would have been nice. probably five or six years later. So I mean, I'm I'm grateful that I didn't have to run into more of that. But we we made we made up and we were okay with it. But. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's. I think there's. There's kind of an ambivalence towards Bouton and the the the, the tell all inside the locker room type stuff. Even Jim Brosnan, you kind of yes. like the Bouton. You, you, there's there's an ambivalence there that kind of comes through. You know that that you know I I would not have expected even like going going back and looking at. It, I, you know, I, I by the time I discovered your book, I had read Ball Four probably at least three times. So I was well versed well versed in in you know, in, in where it was coming from, even as a teenager. But, uh, and I, that may have struck me as, as a little odd, given that both of them were coming from, you know, a left field position compared to the, you know, the more mainstream sports books that, you know, the bios right. that I'd read and things like that, that, uh, yep. uh, that you guys were not necessarily uh, harmonious. But getting back to it, though, I, I was always struck and, and it really stands out, I think, looking at it back at it now from this moment is, you know, the, your mix of irreverence and and respect and reverence it really shows up when it comes to you know you guys express a deep respect and appreciation for players of color and what they were going mm-hmm. through during their careers i'm sure your book introduced me to Minnie minoso for example mm-hmm. and here i'm just going to try to find the passage here and, and just read a couple lines of it Minnie minoso played the game the way it's supposed to be played he did not have the power of a mantle or the overall talent of a maze but he sprayed hits to all fields never swung in a bad pitch, crowded the plate, bunted, stole bases, broke up double plays, made diving catches, and always, but always hit the cutoff man. He loved to play baseball, was in every minute of every game he ever played, and never let up, no matter how one-sided the score. He was what baseball was all about, and as a matter of fact, he still is what baseball is all about, because last year, at an age when most baseball players have resigned themselves to placid careers of fly-tying and package store operation, Manny Minoso was one of the leading hitters of the Mexican League. And by Jesus, I bet he can still do everything as well as he ever did. That's just one of them. And one of the other ones here that's that struck me, Sandy Amaros. Mm-hmm. Sandy Amaros was a member of the second to last generation of excellent black ball players exported to the United States from Cuba after the end of the Second World War. He was a speedy, heady, solid outfielder who helped anchor the numerous Dodger pennant winners of the 50s and early 60s. He made front page headlines in 1956 when his spectacular catch of a Yogi Berra line drive helped win the World Series for Brooklyn. And again in 1970, when he was discovered penniless and unemployed, applying for family assistance in an upper Manhattan welfare office. This is an indication of how far the mighty can fall in this country if they are black, unskilled, not particularly thrifty, come from Cuba, or have at one time or another worked for Walter O'Malley. I just think, you know, with, with, with passages like that, I, I, I think you guys, and there's, there's numerous other examples of it that you guys show an empathy there that I think was, you know, really, really stuck out at the time because mm-hmm. there were just, you know, there wasn't, you know, in the, in the white, the white world yep. of sports, sports writing, there just weren't, unless you were, unless you were writing, you know, reading about stars, you just didn't hear about these guys mm-hmm. uh, and, and what they went through. And Minoso was a guy who, you know, I think the novelty of his comebacks sort of obscured his greatness. And I think he's still, you know, as a, as a hall of fame candidate, still paying for that. I've been championing his, his case for the hall of fame. I think he's number one on the list uh, Mm -hmm. of of the uh, various era committees and hopefully gets in. But I I think that that has helped the book age particularly well. I appreciate those words. That that was certainly not, it wasn't an intent of ours in terms of writing the book. Those were just players that we remember in a certain way and they triggered certain, certain things. And that's great. 
if I understand correctly, you wrote most of the National League guys and Brendan most of the American League guys because of where you'd grown up. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. Brendan was a Boston boy and, and a Red Sox fan. And he got to you know see a lot of the, see and focus on a lot of the American League players. And I was from Philadelphia, and we sort of arbitrarily broke it down that way. Right. It doesn't. It didn't. Didn't fall that way 100. percent But uh, pretty sure. much it broke that way. It's an easy way to to do it. Yeah. And is it is it he that wrote the essay on nostalgia and you that visited the tops headquarters in the, in the uh, front the front of the book yep, essays? That's right. Okay. Yep. I don't think I ever tried to match those up before before picking up the book in the last couple of days here. But uh, now you know, based on knowing that, and I think you pointed to that Wikipedia page. I think I may have gotten it from there at all. That all kind of clicked mm-hmm. into place there, which I'd seen that page before. I thought it was a pretty well done summary of of my understanding of things. One card I wanted to mention: the Unitas card is hilarious because you guys just pop a football card in there and are, are talking about his his flat top haircut <laughs> why do you think johnny Unitas looks this way is he stoned is his hair too tight has he just been <laughs> dropped on his head by leo nonalini <laughs> I, I, I love those lines and i you know i would read these to a friend who was wasn't even a baseball fan or a sports fan and and and, and he just thought they were hilarious thank you one that really clicked for me was the aurelio rodriguez card um oh, because yeah. that's the one where where there's um it's an Angels third baseman, but the picture is a picture of an Angels bat boy. And right, as it right, turns right. out, that guy, the, the bat boy, was then the trainer for the AAA Salt Lake Gulls team that I was watching oh, no. on a regular basis. So I had, you know, uh, I, you know, one of the local dairy or, or bakery, you know, when they put out those, car, those card sets, uh, mm-hmm. of minor league card sets had had made light of that a guy named Leonard Garcia was was the tra- was the trainer's name had made light oh, of wow, the fact that great. he was he was in that co- collection so when I saw that that was the, that was your book would have been the first time I actually saw that card and I was like oh so <laughs> so that 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 was cool but yeah you know in, in contrast to the uh to the reverence of of that there's black and latin players there's um there's one here that i was just laughing at just a a, a random uh, infielder here for the angels named joe i don't think any of us know how to pronounce this joe cop copy k-o-p-p-e yeah i always say copy been, yeah yeah copy if there's one thing baseball has never been short of it's wise guys when was the last time you saw a left-handed shortstop anyway and this is a reference to copy wearing his glove on his right hand in the photo despite the fact that he is in fact right-handed and an infielder and could not have logically played shortstop that way. <laughs> Another funny thing is that Joe Copy did was change his name from Kopchia, which means Shlemiel in Serbo-Croatian, <laughs> to Copy, which means Schmuck in Alsace-Lorrainian. I'm a, I'm a sucker for a good Yiddish joke. I mean, that's you know that's my upbringing here. So, so that nobody, not even his relatives, knew whether to call him Kope, Kopi, Cope, or Cop. It didn't matter all that much, of course, since nobody ever had occasion to mention him by name anyway. So, <laughs> another one of those guys, I imagine, if you ever ran into him, might not be as happy with his treatment in the book as uh, yeah. uh, as some. Um, um, the other, oh, the other one that I was going to mention was Rocky Bridges. Oh, right. The entry is too long here for me to read, but Rocky was was managing in the PCL when you know when I was uh, at the point that I came to your book, and I re- remained a lifelong Rocky Bridges fan. You know, mm-hmm. connecting the dots from this to his mm-hmm. uh, lengthy career as a minor league manager, and I actually wrote a tribute to him when he passed away a few years ago. It was actually one, probably one of the last major things I wrote at my Futility Infielder site, but I'm pretty sure I quoted most, <laughs> if not all, of this entry here. And we'll uh, we'll have Dylan throw a link of that to that piece when we introduce this podcast here. You know, it's been a while, Jay, since I've read since since I've read some of those profiles. I'm shocked at how good they were. I mean, I hate to say, I, I, no, I don't hate to say it about my own work. I mean, it was it was fun to do it, but I didn't realize, it, we didn't realize either Brendan or myself how good it was when we did it. 
Yeah, you I know? you know I get that, and not to toot my own horn, but you know I wrote a book about the Hall of Fame, and part of what I did was was these two hundred word capsules, and sometimes I go back to them and like, wow, that, mm-hmm. that guy's that guy's really good. Where'd he go? You know, like <laughs> like as in the writer, you know, as in because yep. you know when I'm looking at my my unedited prose on the screen, sometimes I'm like, this is you know where where where's yep. where's the good guy who did that book? Yeah. You know, why can't why can't why can't we get him in here to, to tighten this up? The first time I realized that that we really were good was when I received a copy of a book. This now this has to go back to probably the early '90s. A book called Baseball: A Literary Anthology, a big, beautiful hardcover book that's part of the Library of America. It's a terrific anthology. I don't even know if it's in print anymore, but um, or even if the Library of America still exists. But, oh, I um, think I have this book somewhere. I just Google, I'm googling it as you're as you're talking. It's I'm, a mar- it's a marvelous book, and you know I, I just flipped through all of the the writers, James Thurber and and, and people like that, and there and Thomas Wolfe, and there's a section from our book, and I read uh, it in the context of reading it in this big hardcover book, laid out without pictures or anything, and. That's the first time I really realized how good the prose was. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. That's cool to see yourself in that context. I was going to say, I sort of relate to the book because, you know, with, with my own, people have referenced like that it's a great bathroom reader because you could just pick yeah. it up and read, you know. I've had that too. A couple hundred words at a time and, and keep going back to it, or, or you keep it on the coffee table, look at it during the commercials when there's when there's no game on or whatever. and Just hang it on the wall in the bathroom, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this book has seen a bunch of different editions if I'm if uh, just at least judging by the by the various covers that I see when I go looking for copies is that uh, I can walk you through them if you like yeah could you yeah I was gonna say could you could you walk sure. us through that yeah the original book the heart the hardcover book came out in uh, 1973 and I think little Brown did something like 30,000 copies which oh, wow. was a decent printing at the time and they did they went back to press for another 20. In, in 73 it came out to coincide with the baseball season the beginning of the baseball season and it was a it was a success and then they did what was called, then called i guess it still is called a trade paperback edition which right. was basically taking the plates that were used to create the hardcover edition and putting paper covers on it for a different kind of distribution and that came out in 74 i think it was and that, that did about the same number of copies and sales and stuff but the big one was in 1975 the the Warner paperback mass market edition, the small format one, which I think is what the cover that you were looking at is from. Very colorful mass market paperback. That's the kind of stuff that. So um, this looks like it could fit next to my seven-inch single collection. Not that I'm, yeah. not that I'm pulling it off the shelves very often. Pull, yeah. Pulling those, so those, I mean, those, that, those that's the it. one that that's the one was in every um, convenience store and airport, uh-huh. everything on the racks and stuff like that. That that went to press for like. 250,000 copies, I think. It oh, was wow. everywhere. But that was that was the book business at that time. That's the way it was done. And then uh, in 1992 or 93, which was which would have been, what, the um, 30, 30 years? Yeah, the 30th. Was it 20? I don't know. Anyway, the, there was an edition came out in ni- the 92 or 93 from a different publisher, Houghton Mifflin in Boston. And that uh, did reasonably well too. That did another probably twenty or thirty thousand copies, and that was the one that I toured behind. Is that the one with the yellow wise. bar, the the title in yellow? Yeah, black on yellow. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah. And that one was the one that they sent me. Uh, I did the Larry King show. That was a big deal at the time. Uh, also, it was on David David Letterman, one of David Letterman's late night wow. with Letterman shows. That kind wow. of stuff, and um, that was and all kinds of other interviews, and that was kind of fun. It was exhausting, but it was fun to kind of see behind the scenes there sure. all those 
venues and things. But uh, and so that was pretty much the, uh, the the end of it. Then I started thinking in the around I don't know what ten years ago that maybe I ought to get it back in print. And nobody wanted, nobody was interested in reprinting it. You know, it's yesterday's news and stuff like that. So I worked with Amazon Kindle whatever the, the back end of that is to publish it myself basically as a Kindle book, an ebook. And it's provided me with enough, you know, enough Starbucks money month to month and royalties, right. you know, but right. it's, it's out there anyway. And it's, it's a good thing. I can point people to it who want to read it. So it's still available, right. but it's obviously not an optimum way to have your book in print. Right. So you're looking, you're looking now in, in advance of the, of the, uh, the 50th anniversary, hoping to get back to, to get another print edition of this. Yeah, I, I would like to see it back in print. That's easier said than done, of course, because I, I have no idea where the original plates are or even a publisher's use plates anymore. You know, right. I, I don't know how a publisher would do it. It was e- it, basically the, the Kindle edition that I did uh, is a fact is what's called a facsimile edition. So it's just basically a photograph of each page. And it's not easy to navigate, I'm told, by people who purchased it, but they can still read it and enjoy it. But a proper book would be nice, you know, the, the original book. And then I auditioned a couple of people to maybe work with. Brendan is retired and I've kind of lost touch with him. He wasn't interested in pursuing it any further. So I auditioned a couple of people and finally settled on one person with whom I have started to write a sequel. Uh-huh. Okay. As yet untitled, but we're thinking of something like chin music because we'd like to work a little rock and roll into it too somehow, okay. in some way, shape, or form. But anyway, uh, thinking about a you know a sequel to it, which I'd be interested in uh, in getting that published as well. So that's, wow. that's sort okay. of where we are right now. So for the sequel, are you are you looking at more modern cards or? Well, there, there have been a lot of cards that have, have been printed since you know 90, right. the, the end of the 60s so um there's yeah we've we, uh, with my various uh, co-authors and, and especially with don hubbard the, the guy that i'm working with now we've we've got quite a lot of players it's not uh, so much the player as the card the card sort of is the reason the, the way the card looks and the although the modern cards are so different from cards back then you know they're all kind of slick and glossy and right. all kinds of fancy designs and stuff like that. So you don't really get that, you know, that, that visual pop from the card. But there's still enough to say about enough kind of weird and wacky players and, and right. good players, too, over the years. So we, th- we think it's a viable concept. Yeah, I think so, too. I hope so. So, you know, if writing about the more modern cards and the more modern players, what do you make of what's become of the hobby of baseball card collecting? Especially, I mean, you know, in recent weeks, we've seen what looks to be the demise of tops through right. uh, Major League Baseball's deal, deal with fanatics, and and of which uh, I, uh, I'm not incredibly well-versed on where the hobby's gone myself, but I'm wondering what, what you make of it. I mean, obviously, you've seen the whole arc of it, you know, from, you know, when the cards weren't very valued at all to when they were right. became a huge speculative tool and then yep. when they the overproduction of the late 80s and the the junk wax and 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 all that yeah i i really had a, a front row seat there and i guess the the mid 1980s i had been you know in a mass market world of mass market retailing anyway working for a chain of uh, stores similar to target or walmart at that time called hills department stores they were all over the middle atlantic area and I got tired of that and, and thought, you know, maybe a retail operation of my own. So I opened up a, a collectible store, a baseball card store in Concord, Mass, called the Great American Baseball Card Company. That was a, probably 87, 88 and around there. And we opened and got about five good years out of it until the junk wax era hit. And it stopped being fun and people started 
buying cases to put away for their retirement and stuff like that (laughs) of stuff that was way overproduced. I had a good time for the first few years because my customers were primarily neighborhood kids and their their fathers and mothers in some cases and it was fun the kids would hang around and trade cards and all that kind of stuff and but it got to be less and less fun so i got out of it and moved on to some other things but um so i got to see that that sort of pivot point from the whole hobby being kind of fun that people could afford and the kids would still participate in turn pretty drastically to become what it's become today and um I'm I'm pretty discouraged by what I see now. I'm not interested in it in any way, shape, or form. I buy a pack occasionally just to to keep my hand and see what they're what they're producing. But I mean, to have to pay five or ten dollars for a pack of baseball cards is absurd, in my opinion. Yeah, and they I think they've lost the kids completely. Kids have moved. There's so many other things that kids enjoy doing other than buying baseball cards. They can't afford right. it for one thing. Right. I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's adults who were connected to the hobby as kids who are, who are the ones That's buying it. them, yep. Yep. Uh, which is a weird That's it. Exactly. I went to a show. Um, I was, I happened to be down in the DC area back in July. And um, I know Chad Finn a little bit from the Boston Globe. And he, he okay. called me and said he was working on a, a piece about collectibles, collecting on the hobby and stuff like that, which is, if you haven't seen it in the Globe, it's really good. It came out about three or four weeks ago, but he was working on it back in July. And uh, he asked if, he could interview me and we set up an interview and we talked, I happened to be down in, in DC at the time. And I went to a, a major card show down there, a collectible show with, you know, 30 autograph guests, like, you know, people like uh, Doc Gooden and people like that, you know, mm-hmm. but, but it was one of the, one of the big shows and it was all about big prices and, you know, investing and all that kind of stuff. And it was just, I kind of focused on the, the big boxes like commons from 1972, you know, just going through and right. stuff like that. But it was, uh, I'm, I'm pretty discouraged about the hobby. Yeah. Such fair enough. For the most part, I'm, I'm there with you. I buy a few packs a year and you know, right. kind of keep uh, just to check out the new designs. I'm always drawn to the heritage series where they're, mm-hmm. you know, replicating the seventies designs because that's what yes, I grew up yes, on. Yes. I had a cousin who was, I think five or six years older than me, still is five or six years older than me, but in uh, maybe 1980 or so, he handed down his about 2,000 cards, and they were a lot of 73s and 74s and seven and tops mini 75s. And mm-hmm. uh, so I have a, a, a you know great affection for those for those 70s years and also the the late 60s ones. And mm-hmm. those are the designs I come back to. And so when I see when I see the heritage editions when they're when they're doing those or, or some of the custom cards too, mm-hmm. using like the the 72 style that uh, that very yep. Art Deco-y style, uh, my eye is drawn to those and I've, I've i've made a few random purchases of those like those project 70 or tops tops mm-hmm. project 2020 top 70 project i i get the names mixed up um, right. i was just in cooperstown but i bought a few of those and, and that's uh but that's about my connection to the hobby as well when so, i was in when i was in the oh, business part of it with my with my store and stuff i went to trade shows and you know got all kinds of promotional stuff and, and got to see some of those things and and realize the things i really like are the ones that are nostalgic for me you know, and, right. and just the, the kind of along the lines of what you were saying, you know, when they do the, the heritage sets or the, the reprint of older sets and stuff like that, that's what appeals to me. Right. As far as, as far as baseball itself, how, uh, how, how closely do you follow it these days? Oh, very close. I, I, <laughs> a typical evening here, if there is such a thing is is watching a Red Sox game. And especially when Dennis Eckersley is doing the common commentating uh-huh. on, on, on the, on the television broadcast. Um, and Sean McDonough does some of the, um, the radio broadcast this year too so we're in we're in good shape as far as broadcasting is concerned 
but uh, I mean, I'll, I'll sit and the thing will be on the whole game will be on, you know, I'm not, I'm not flipping around to other channels and stuff like that. I'm not a red zone kind of guy. If there is such a thing for baseball. Right. So I'll, I'll watch the game, but I mean, I'll be doing other things. I mean, if, if, if Eckersley's not on, I'll mute it and probably listen to podcasts like yours or other people's and, uh-huh. while I'm scrolling through Twitter and multicasting. Right. And all that kind right. Of stuff. You're like the rest of us paying half attention to it at this point, uh, a good, por- yep. a good portion of the time. Yeah. I get that. <laughs> I'm, I'm still addicted to it though. I mean, I, I, I really just follow the Red Sox at this point, or maybe some team that a guy like Mookie, the Dodgers, because Mookie Betts was here and we loved him. And he'll play, he plays for the Dodgers and I'll watch them too sometimes. Right. Yeah. I can't, I can't get enough Mookie Betts. He's uh uh, <laughs> yeah, I, grew, I grew up a I grew up a Dodgers fan and and usually the work pattern around here is 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 after after we put our kid to bed I'm going back to do to finish tomorrow's article and then and then watch some West Coast baseball and yep. uh, Mookie Mookie is uh, just a, a whole lot of fun and I, I we still hated to believe, lose him we really I did. still can't believe the Red Sox traded him and I, I kind of <laughs> poke fun at that every time I get a chance yep. uh, sorry about that but uh, um, it, it's but you asked uh, you asked about baseball my relationship with baseball it's still pretty solid and I think that goes back to the nostalgia, personal nostalgia for me, you know, of right. playing the game and, and going to games at uh, Phillies games at uh, Connie Mack Stadium and, uh-huh. and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, my, my sport of choice right now is NFL football. And not right. just because we've been so successful here in New England, but uh, just because I love the game. I used to play it and um, I love the game within the game and, you know, all that kind of the coaches film and all that kind of stuff. I'm really deep into that now. That's my uh-huh. primary sports uh, passion, okay. I think. Interesting. I don't watch much football myself, so I can't. I I, I get it, but at the same time, it's 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 become a foreign sport sure. now that I'm baseball year round. Sure. Well, thank you very much for for coming on here. This is really great to talk to you and to hear about the arc of the book and the fact that you're still uh, uh, hoping to to uh, literally write new chapters to the story of the Great American Baseball Card Flipping, Trading, and Bubblegum Book. Well, thank you, Jake. Thanks for the nice words. Well, thank you for Fred Harris for coming on. And uh, for Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest is Cole Salser, pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles. Cole, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Cole, we met earlier this summer in Detroit at Comerica Park. So maybe let's start with ballparks. Which has been your favorite since you got to the big leagues uh, a few years ago? Yeah, that's always uh, such an interesting kind of point because there's different ones I like for different reasons. I mean, first off, I got to say it's hard to beat a hometown crowd. So I do love playing in Camden Yards, and I think it's a beautiful backdrop. I absolutely love uh, you know, the warehouse in the background. I'm definitely partial to more historic stadiums, and so I like kind of that look. So ones that stand out to me, of course, would be you know Fenway with the history there. Uh, it's definitely an awesome part to be kind of a, a part of that when you go out there on the field. Do any standout Cole that you're really anxious to visit that you have not yet set foot in, either as a player or as a fan? I would say Wrigley would be one I haven't had the opportunity to play at yet. I would really like to play there. I believe we were supposed to in 2020, but uh, due to the coronavirus and the reshuffling of schedules, we were kind of more limited to the East Coast. So I'd really like to see that one for all the same reasons. The, you know, the historic nature of it definitely seems like that would be an awesome opportunity to go play there. Yeah, you are, I believe, from the San Diego area. Have you had any opportunity to go to Petco as a player? So that's another one I'd love to play at. I haven't had a chance. 
I have played at Anaheim and I've played at the Dodgers, which both of those were great experiences as well, just because of that. Being a Southern California guy, remember going to those games kind of as, as a kid and seeing the stadiums. And so getting that opportunity or chance to go be there as a player uh, was really special for sure. You know, more family and friends could come, that sort of thing. So both those parks were great, but haven't gotten to play actually in San Diego where I probably went to most of my games as a kid. So looking forward to that opportunity one day. Let's jump back in time, Cole, to your collegiate days. You played at Dartmouth. What is the best Ivy League ballpark? Oh, I have to say Dartmouth. No, I, at that time, Dartmouth and, you know, still now, I believe it's one of the, the more beautiful Ivy League stadiums. There's some older ones that might have a little more historic value. Yale's got a, a more, probably a more historic field, that sort of thing. But Dartmouth had, when I went there my freshman year, had just redone their entire baseball field. So it was a really nice, brand new facility. Very kind of rural backdrop setting with uh, the mountains of New Hampshire there in the background. And so it was a, a very nice setting and great place to play as a, as a college player. I live in Cambridge, Mass., so I walk by O'Donnell Field periodically, which is next to Harvard Stadium. Not a fancy park by any means, but great baseball there. Oh, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, it's right there in the city, as you mentioned, so it's not maybe as updated as, as a couple of the parks, but still just uh, being there in Cambridge and, and getting to play in that city is still a, a really fun experience. And playing at Dartmouth, one of your teammates was Kyle Hendricks. So I feel obligated to ask if you have a good Kyle Hendricks story that you can share. Oh, I'm trying to think on that one. Ah, off the top of my head, I, I really don't. I mean, me and him were uh, same class, so we went to college together for three years. But definitely most of our experiences, were, you know, revolved around baseball. Obviously, just watching his career was fantastic, and it was just so impressive. Like his our freshman year, he was such a contributor and pitching in the Ivy Championship game. So we ended up winning the Ivy Championship, and it was the first time Dartmouth had won the Ivy League Championship in 20 or so years. And for him to be a freshman pitching in the final game of that series was uh, pretty amazing. Kind of always stuck out to me for sure. Yeah, fans around the, the country, you know, fans of more than just the Cubs and teams that he's played for, have a good feel for who he is on the mound. What is Kyle Hendricks like as a person off the field? Oh, I mean, he's a he's a great guy and not much else to say about that. He's one of my really good friends from college. We're still in touch to this day and, you know, love to talk baseball. And uh, we've gone back and visited Dartmouth a few times and try to run into each other once or twice in offseason if we can. Just a really good, thoughtful person. I mean, a lot of kind of his persona on the mound is, is similar to him as a as an individual in terms of being, uh, you know, thinks out kind of what he's going to do and is obviously very thoughtful and considerate when it comes to his uh, everyday life as well as what he does for work. And I believe that I just said Cubs and the teams he's played with. I'm pretty certain now that I think about he has only played for the Cubs, so... I believe so. I believe he was yeah. a minor leaguer when he was uh, traded to the Cubs. And you have been around a little bit, as has Matt Bowman, who has pitched for both the Reds and Cardinals at the big league level. He was at Princeton when you were at Dartmouth. I looked this up and was surprised to see that Matt was arguably a better hitter than pitcher in college. Yeah, no, it, it's true. I remember uh, him Definitely being in the box and, uh, you know, something that you had to worry about. He was a good hitter. Obviously, professional teams saw more of a potential upside in his throwing ability, but definitely. And what about Mike Ford? You know, with the, with the Yankees, he was also at Princeton and very successful as a two-way player. 
he was very, very successful as a two-way player. Same thing. We always kind of wondered, you know, if he got a chance professionally, which obviously he did, which way he was going to go more as a pitcher or as a as a hitter. And so it's been kind of interesting to see those two guys, both two-way guys. One took more of a pitching route, and obviously Mike Ford became a, you know, professional major league hitter. So it was definitely a tough team to play when we had to face those guys, for sure. Was there a question at all for you, Cole, or is your bat maybe not quite professional quality? Oh, I knew my bat wasn't professional quality. No doubt about that. I don't even know if my bat was uh, collegiate quality, really. So it's probably why I was a pitcher only. That is what I tend to do and, and what I'm better at for sure. So I don't foresee me trying to pick up the bat anytime soon. And with the success that Bowman and Ford had as hitters, I know that the Ivy League and MLB are completely different animals, but could you see more Shohei Otanis in the future? Not talent-wise, obviously, but able to play on both sides of the ball? I think so. I think there's organizations might be opening up to that idea a little bit. I think the hardest part when it kind of comes down to being able to play two-way is, of course, the skill set. It's It's hard to be one of the best in the world, both at pitching and hitting. But the other part is just injury management. And so that's always a tough thing. I think teams are going to have to balance uh, looking at two-way guys. But with the success of Otani, I, I can see teams looking for value in that way, that if they can end up with a guy who can pitch some quality innings for them, as well as be an offensive threat, um, you know, you're getting a great bargain, two-for-one value. So and with injuries in mind, Cole, I believe you have had Tommy John surgery actually twice. I have, yes. One of the one of those guys. <laughs> yeah. How how hard is that when you learned that you needed to have it for the second time? I believe you were coming off a not very good year at age twenty four in a ball. Did you start to think about the degree you have in your back pocket? Absolutely. I mean, it definitely crossed my mind. And I remember, you know, kind of some long hours of thinking and considering what was the best path forward. Uh, exactly as you mentioned, I was a senior sign and I had an Ivy League degree in my back pocket, which was great. And I always loved having as my backup plan. But baseball was still my number one like passion. And so kind of at that time, though, with a major injury and, and knowing that I was going to have to go through you know, 12 to 14 months of rehab with no guarantee that it would be successful. I definitely considered other avenues, but uh, ultimately at that time, I had a lot of support from my, my family, my parents, and we discussed it. And baseball is not something I can come back to when I'm 40 and well-established. So if I was going to give it a go, now was the time at 24. And so I decided to go ahead and give it another try, go through the rehab and see how it turned out. And we mentioned Mike Ford earlier. I saw that you and he were teammates one year in the Dominican Winter League. Correct. And while I don't know if they were, you were all there at the same time, you know, with the roster flux, but uh, Nestor Cortez and an 18-year-old Fernando Tatis were on that team as well? Correct. And we were all there at the same time. We were there at the beginning of the season. So I played with uh, all those guys. They were great. I mean, uh, Nestor and Mike are both really fun personalities, really good clubhouse guys. Uh, and obviously, Tatis was just extremely impressive, especially for his age. I mean, you know, at the time, he might have been a little bit raw, but uh, you could just see how much talent the guy had. And it was it was pretty impressive. I remember uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr., he was in the league as well, didn't play with him, but played against him. Same thing. This is, you know, years ago before he's the player he is now. But you could see the same power and potential that he had. And how many different windups did uh, Nestor Cortez have at that time? Oh, very similar. I have probably too many for me to count. He 
he likes to throw some unique motions out there, and it was really impressive because it was something that you almost grow up playing with, and it almost gets trained out of you. You know, as a kid, and you're playing a wiffle ball or backyard baseball, you mess around with different arm angles and motions. But as you move up and you get older, you kind of start trying to take it more serious and trying to be more professional. So I think it's a, a characteristic that gets trained out of a lot of ball players. And it was really awesome to watch a guy go out there in a professional setting and kind of still have that, that fun and freedom. And it's obviously worked out really well for him. I mean, he's having a, a good year contributing for the Yankees. So Right, with he and a few other guys maybe doing a little, few more pauses, a little more turns. You know, maybe that will be a thing in the future similar to the, the two-way players because it certainly can't be bad for baseball to add a little bit of style. Oh, definitely not. I think the hardest thing to it is it's uh, it's like anything else in sports. It's a skill. It's a matter of uh, can you add those sort of pauses and deception to a hitter while not taking away from hopefully your command or stuff. And he's done a great job of being able to do exactly that, be able to mess with his motion while still pitching very effectively. And you were with the team at the same time as the, the people I just named in the Dominican. You are now with an Orioles team that has used something along the order of 40 pitchers this year. How many times this year have you had to introduce yourself to a, a teammate? Well, definitely a few times. As you mentioned, we've had a few pitchers come through, both bullpen and starters. But, you know, it's a lot of the guys, that, luckily, with spring training, you get to say hi to a lot of those guys early. So it's usually a familiar face for the most part, that gets brought up later, and you get to say hi to them and welcome them to the big league level and go from there. And unless I'm mistaken, you have been there right from, from opening day, which is a feather in the cap for a, a senior sign, right? I appreciate it, yeah. So I was, to be perfectly honest, I was optioned for a little over a week right after opening day, but I was right back up after that. So I was down for a series or two and then came right back up. And pitching well this year, certainly. Cole, a, uh, you know, maybe a hard question to answer, but what is it like to play for a team that has 100 plus losses? It can be difficult, you know, at times, but uh, at the same time, there's so many positives that can still come out of it. There is a tremendous amount of opportunity, especially for a player like me who is trying to establish himself at the major league level. So knowing that you have the flexibility to, to continue working and trying to establish yourself at a, as a major league guy can be very beneficial. And I think that's what's so great for a lot of these players. As we mentioned, there's been a lot of different arms that have pitched. But they're getting an opportunity to see the major league level, to see if they can compete here. And you're getting chances that you may not get with a lot of other organizations. So, of course, we want to win. And I think we have a very talented team that might be a little young or a little raw right now. But I know we're all also very thankful to be getting that opportunity to become a more established player at this level. And you were in the minors for several years. One of your teammates on the Carolina League team that I mentioned earlier when you had the, you know, the not-so-impressive year was Lewis Head. He made his major league debut with the Rays this summer. I forget if Lewis was either 30 or 31, so that says a lot about resiliency. Oh, absolutely. He's, same thing, one of my really good friends from the minor league and professional baseball. We played together off and on for numerous years coming up through the Indians organization, probably a roommate of mine in double A and triple A, all that. So I know Lou really well, and it was really special to watch him be able to not only get an opportunity this year at 31 to be a rookie, but to also really succeed at it. I mean, he's pitched really well, 
And it's just amazing to see, you know, and really happy for the guy to get that type of opportunity. Uh, it's kind of an interesting story. I mean, I believe last year he might have been selling solar panels in Arizona, not knowing if his baseball career was over. So to now fast forward a year and see that he's contributed so much at the major league level to a winning ball club is really special. No, and based on uh, my opportunity to speak to him earlier this summer, a pretty good dude as well. Oh, absolutely. Great guy. And so when good things happen to good people, it's always, it's always nice to see. Yeah, we have time for uh, a few more things, Cole. Your Major League debut came with the Tampa Bay Rays in September of 2019. What do you remember about that game? Oh, that was one of the most special days for sure. I mean, getting the opportunity at, you know, I was a 29-year-old uh, first call-up, and so it was a really special moment to get that opportunity in the locker room down in Durham, know that I was getting called up for the first time. And it was awesome because my family was able to be there. My girlfriend was able to come in and, and see that opening series. And so to now be on a major league field, something that had been a goal of mine for, you know, years upon years was just a, a totally special moment that I'll never forget. And getting that first call in from the bullpen, running out to the mound. One of the other guys gave me a really good piece of advice. I'd heard it a couple times coming up through the minors to just that first outing, take a moment, look around the stadium when you're on the field there, and just know that you're at the highest level of baseball that, that there is. And so I remember doing exactly that. And then you kind of lock it back in and, and go out there and do what you're meant to do, and that's pitch. But it was a really special moment to share with my family and my girlfriend. And uh, my brother was able to be there, which was really cool. He's a minor league baseball player for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and they allowed him to leave season slightly early, come down so he could watch my major league debut. So it was very, very special. Right. Your brother being a Dartmouth alum as well, correct? Correct. Yes. We both attended Dartmouth. Both were senior signs. He's uh, playing for the Pittsburgh Pirates organization in AAA. And yeah. And in your debut, you K'd the first batter. <laughs> I did. Yes. Yeah. So that was pretty special. I was glad to get that one out of the way, get to keep a little souvenir, my first strikeout. So that was, that was pretty awesome. Right. And then you came back, Cole, to pitch a second inning. And I'm wondering if you ended up buying Emilio Pagan dinner. Oh, I definitely, owe, I definitely owed him dinner. I mean, he saved me completely. I, after that first inning, the, the level of adrenaline had been so high. And then we went into the dugout and I wasn't at, at first, the game was like a little closer. So most likely another pitcher was going to take the, the ninth inning. Um, but then we ended up scoring some runs. So it ended up being a little bit of a long inning. My adrenaline kind of crashed after that. And I went back out and I was just sluggish for the next inning, you know. So it was something I had to learn to adapt to for sure. And I got into a little trouble in that ninth inning. And they brought in Emilio Pagan and he came in and absolutely saved me. So I definitely owed him dinner at that point. No, Emilio bailed you out of bases loaded, none out, which allowed you to finish your first season, your first September season. I think it was seven, maybe seven innings, seven outings without allowing a run. The following year, you then pitched a clean two innings, and then the bubble burst. I saw that Aaron Judge hit you with a three-run homer for the first runs that you gave up in the big leagues. So I kind of hate to throw the negative in there. But what, what did that feel like to give up your first big league bomb? Yeah, I, it's not my favorite memory, but it is, it is one that, you know, you're always going to remember as well. And 
it's going to happen. If you play the game long enough, you're going to give up home runs. I'm, I've given up several since then, and I'm sure I'll give up several more. But of course, yeah, it was my first, a lot of firsts on, on that one. I ended up giving up my first runs in the major leagues, gave up my first home run in the major leagues, gave up my first blown save in the major leagues. So it was kind of a, lo a lot of firsts in a negative way piled on at once, which I guess in some ways can be good. Get them all out of the way in one shot and move on the next day. And I think after that, we, we had to go play the Rays and had another opportunity in the ninth within the next couple days. So, you know, as a bullpen guy, you kind of got to have a, a short memory and go out there the next time. Yeah, the zero ERA was not going to last your whole career. <laughs> no, I, I wish it could. I wish it could. But, you know, being a mathematics guy, I think that's pretty, pretty improbable. No, for certain. Yeah, you do have, I believe your degree is in engineering. Correct. Yes. Mechanical engineering. Final question, Cole. In last week's episode of Fangraphs Audio, I asked Colin McHugh about his post-playing career days. At age 31, you have a few years in front of you, presumably. But at the same time, nobody pitches forever. What does your crystal ball show? Oh, that's a tough question. I, I wish I knew the complete answer to that. The, the best thing I could probably say is that obviously I have a passion for baseball. And now my experience in there ha has you know, gone on and I've now had experience at different levels in the major league level. So I believe I would love to find a way in the future to combine both my more analytic and engineering background with my baseball experience. But uh, so much of that will depend, I guess, on, on when that final day comes, whether that's a year from now or, or five years from now or 10 years from now. You know, it's a bridge I'll have to cross when I get there. Right. So pitch design could be in your future, pitch design as an instructor rather than as a, a player. Definitely, definitely a possibility. It's something I've always been interested in. I think it's helped my career a ton. So it's, it's something I would be, of course, interested in sharing with other players. Fantastic. Cole, I think we are out of time. So I would like to thank you once again for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Oh, yeah, no problem. Thanks again for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Fred Harris and Cole Sulser for joining us. If you enjoyed the program, leave us a rating or review, or tell a friend, or even send me a tweet at dhhiggins. And don't forget to check out the Fangraphs shop, as well as our newsletter, free to your inbox with updates every weekday to keep you in the loop. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.